Welcome. Good evening. All right. My name is Tim Gao. For those who don't know me, one of the guiding teachers here at Seattle Insight. So this month we're exploring wisdom as part of what's called the three pillars of the Dharma. And next month we'll open to second one is going to be Donna. So next month will be Donna. So you think about three pillars, like in, a, in an architectural sense, that's what holds up the building. It's what allows everything to be supported and grounded. And this is what the, the Dharma does in these three aspects. And our practice really needs to have all three aspects cultivated and developed and bring our interest to them. So tonight we'll be talking about wisdom in a little more detail, but we don't want to forget about the importance of um, Donna, of generosity, and also of Sila, of our ethical actions or ethical behavior. Because when these three all work together, they have the effect of allowing our attention, our minds to start to settle. We become more grounded in our, in our lives. Because if we're not being ethical, if we're not being generous, it creates a certain level of inner turmoil. It also tends to make our minds more active, more second-guessing ourselves, trying to justify our actions. And of course, there's all the contraction of heart when we're hurting other people, when we're being a kind of a selfish, self-centered perspective, there's a separation that also develops, which really goes contrary to the cultivation and development of wisdom. So these, even though we're going to pull out each one by themselves for each month as a topic, always come back to looking at how they all, they all work together, how they all part of an interconnected whole, like three pillars holding up a building. So wisdom, such a, a big word sometimes. We all want to be wise and we want to be wise people and act wisely. I think it's helpful to contrast wisdom with something that sometimes we mistake for wisdom, and that's knowledge. Okay, knowledge is the ideas, the training, the concepts we have. Not to say that doesn't have its place. We have knowledge helps us navigate the world in more and more clear ways. And yet, knowledge itself is different from wisdom. They're related, but wisdom is a, is a way of kind of taking knowledge and actually embodying it, seeing it directly through our own experience, through the laboratory of our minds, our bodies. In that way, there's a, a quality of integration, a sense of embodiment, a sense of, of confidence in what we, we know through wisdom versus what we know through knowledge. There's different ways of these two get cultivated. For knowledge, you know, we can read a book, we can listen to a talk, we can obtain training. And really this is like the outside coming in. We're observing, we're sensing, we're being taught something. And we often start this way. It's often a big part of how we grow as, as human beings or any endeavor we do. We take that knowledge in. Wisdom, on the other hand, we can think of it as from the inside out. It's like this direct integration, this direct seeing, this direct knowing of something. It's interesting to consider this when you're like, am I in wisdom or am I in knowledge? You know, where am I in that spectrum? There's a little construction going on downstairs. That's what that banging is going on. 
we think about from a place of knowledge, when I think from a knowledge place, a conceptual place, I can feel my energy going up into my head, I can feel kind of a shifting of where my locus of perception is coming from. While when I go into wisdom, there's a sense of, of kind of drifting into the body, into the bones, into the cells, into the heart. It's got a very different way of relating and understanding something, of experiencing it. This is so much of our practice, is we might hear a Dharma concept and then it really catches our, our knowledge base. We really get interested in how does this work? How does this fit into all the things I already know? You know the ideas this can be very invigorating, very exciting. And at some point, knowledge starts to move into the direct experience of it. We actually see, well, this actually applies in my life. It applies in my work, my relationships, in my parenting, in my caregiving, whatever I might be doing in my life. I start to see it showing up. Even under the microscope of our meditative practice, of our mindfulness practice, we start to see it in a more nuanced way, the subtle ways of, of perhaps clinging, or the five aggregates, how they show up. The Four Noble Truths become something that's not so abstract, but actually something we can experience directly in our, in our minds and bodies. That's one of the gifts of learning to be mindful or practice mindfulness meditation. It allows us to start to see our lives and our experience much more directly and clearly. Usually we see ourselves and other people through kind of the lens of our experience, through our ideas, through our concepts. Again, there's a lot of utility to this. And there's also a way that it creates a certain insulation from the immediacy of how life actually is presenting itself. There's an insulation, a way of kind of fixing it on what we already know. This little poem I, I like to read by Samuel Green starts with this line that everything we see carries the burden of what we know until we let it be itself again. Walking the yard with coffee cooling in my hand, I stop at a single seed of hawksbeard balanced on a blade of grass. Except for paying attention, what else is continual prayer? So everything we see carries the burden of what we know until we let it be itself again. Right? So when we already know something, we think we know it. We have this idea, this is my, I, my concepts of it, my memories, memories of it. I'm not relating to it how it actually is. There's not the true curiosity. There's not the true intimacy around it. Right? Same thing with ourselves. I'm always like this. This is who I am. Those kind of self-defining thoughts, those concepts, create a certain burden that we all carry until we let it be itself again. Now, knowledge, you can sometimes get a, a clue about it when you're kind of more on the knowledge side of it versus wisdom when someone disagrees with you. When someone says, you know, the sky really isn't blue, it's green, or something like that. And you know, we hear that, and we just want to, you know, argue the point. And if we go into the knowledge base of it, if we actually just look at the sky and we directly take it in, there's no question, there's no sense of argument that needs to arise in that. But so often we're more in a, a knowledge perspective or knowledge bias, 
we have to defend it. We have to justify it. We have to. We can argue the point. We feel that you know our our, our anger, irritation rises when someone says something contrary. It's because it's really in this relative world of thought and idea. And we can all have you know very clear, insightful ideas of things, but if it stays in the level of idea, someone can negate that. Someone can show us who we're, we're wrong in our thinking. Well, when those insights start to go into our, into our actual experience, then it becomes something that's irrefutable. And you know, we don't have to argue about it because we know it deeply. It doesn't really matter if someone tells us that's not how it is. We know it from our own direct experience of it. It's also a quality of knowledge tends to be a little static. You know, it becomes, you could say like from language standpoint, becomes more of a noun. A statement like this is how things. This is a, a person. This is a cat. This is a dog. It's kind of a solidity to it. Well, wisdom tends to have more of a quality of a verb, of something that's constantly unfolding and changing and evolving right in front of us. We let things be part of that evolution. So that sense of staticness, we can we can see how that. Yeah, this is. I once have got it, then I've kind of acquired it. I don't have to keep being paying so much attention to it. Well, wisdom is something that actually we see it showing up moment by moment, and there's an aliveness to it. There's a way that it's, it's presenting itself falling away. It's a way it's always being kind of confirmed and shown, and also it's always evolving. And it's not such an easy way to, to make a statement about it, to make a, this is what it is to be wise, or this is a wise statement. It's almost more of an attitude, a way of relating to, to life and to experience. And as we'll explore in the, the homework, as hopefully you did last week, and we'll have a chance to explore in the small groups, hopefully wisdom or ideas, say knowledge, starts to shift over time into wisdom, just through being alive just through the life's lessons that it present, presents us again and again. The art of meditation allows us to learn those lessons in more and more subtle ways, more deep ways, more clear ways. So we don't perhaps need to have the huge lessons that knock us off our feet before we pay attention. And sometimes things we thought were wisdom, actually over time we start to see, oh, that was a little bit more on the knowledge side of things. So two examples I shared last week was one around this, this simple equation that this, this first teacher of mine shared is that any experience that we have, you know, whether it's a sight, a smell, a sensation, a thought, if we have a lot of resistance to it, if we're fighting it, pushing it away, that creates a level of suffering. In fact, the more resistance we have toward it, the more suffering we will have. So resistance times experience equals suffering. A simple mathematical equation. So if you have little resistance, there's little suffering, right? No resistance, no suffering, right? So I, I heard that, I was going through a, a painful uh, dissolution of a relationship and I was trying to find my way through this and never practiced before other than some other, other kinds of traditions and it really caught my eye, it really kind of triggered that, that, that yearning to know that, 
to see that for myself. And you see how that is. So this knowledge, this idea became something that really drew my practice. And over time, you know, I gained deeper and deeper understandings of what that really meant. Even to this day, understanding what it means to really not resist this moment's experience, not to resist that thing that I'm struggling with. And I shared the kind of the strong lesson of a kidney stone attack on a retreat and how I learned that in a, in a deeper way that the kidney stone, I was trying to practice with it and relax with it and not resist it. And yet there's tremendous pain. And finally, I got through my uh, stoic, stubborn nature and got some help. And then that really shifted once the ER morphine came and kicked in. But as I went through that experience, I, I thought, okay, I really learned something about resistance and fighting that. I could have understood it. But I thought the kidney stone had passed, no problem. But then about a month later, it was actually just stuck in the ureter and started to move again, that tube between the kidney and the bladder. It started to move. And as soon as it started to move, the intense pain came back like that. And a millisecond after the pain was the wave of fear. And apprehension and projection of okay, how much is this going to cost and going to the ER and get another CAT scan and all that stuff. But I could see that those are actually two different things. And I added on this level of unnecessary suffering, my fear, my projection, based on my very real experience. I was projecting that into the future. So as I did that, I understood more deeply what really resistance, how it amplifies suffering how it amplifies experience into suffering. Another example I gave, again, from my, my own life, I was back in 2000, uh, 2000 or 99, my grandfather, my mom's father, was dying from prostate cancer. He was 92, I believe, something like that. Is that right? Yeah, 92. Got a confirmation from my mom there. <laughs> real time. So, you know, I was lucky enough to spend a few, like a week or so with him, you know, and he's, he's you know, bed, bed bound in the hospital bed, you know, hospice at home and had, you know, chance for conversations and playing chess and all these different things. And at one point he said that he felt the most um, significant phrase from the Bible was that this too shall pass, this too shall pass. And, you know, I heard him say that and we kind of took that in and yeah, the poignancy of this as he was nearing the end of his life. Then maybe a day or so later, he wanted to shave his beard. He was always a clean-shaven man. So he cleared out the hallway, took him in his wheelchair to go into his bathroom down the hallway, and he saw his reflection for the first time after about a month or so. And just the deterioration, the emancipation, not the emancipation, but the um, emaciation. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> the change of, of his health had was so obvious. His first words was just, is that me? The shock of that, is that me? Is that really me? And as I witnessed that, I was like, oh yeah, this, this has gotten a lot more personal all of a sudden. This concept that this too shall pass, seeing the reflection in a way that is undeniable, unquestioning, that this, this too shall pass, this body shall pass, this life shall pass. And this is this movement from idea, from, from knowledge, which could be very profound, into 
wisdom, to that direct knowing, and being able to be with him in that, that I learned some of that, that, that experience of how this too shall pass, and I will learn it in deeper and deeper ways as my own life un unfolds and winds to an end at some point. This is why I often think of compassion as such a helpful um, companion with wisdom. Because if we just have knowledge, we can see kind of in our heads, in our minds, in the sense of concept and idea. But compassion says, look how the suffering is actually applies to you. How it actually shows up in your own heart, in your own life, in those of you loved ones, and those who are fighting and dying right now in other parts of the world. So that sense of compassion takes us from the abstract into the personal into the immediacy of that, allows our hearts to open. This is why we talk about the Dharma having these two wings of wisdom and compassion and how they have to work together for a full flowering of, of our practice. I'm just going to close with a, a little story from perhaps an unexpected direction. It's from the famous book, The Velveteen Rabbit. The Velveteen Rabbit is, a, if you're not familiar with it, he was is basically from the perspective of a, a stuffed animal and how he, he was adopted or handed this, this child who loved him and all this stuff that happened. And there's all these other toys that were in this, in this um, nursery, I guess. So one point, the rabbit, the Velveteen Rabbit, the stuffed animal, asks the skin horse something about what does, it mean? what does it mean to be real? And the skin holder says, real isn't, isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to, to those, except to people who don't understand. By Marguerite Williams Blanco, The Velveteen Rabbit. All right, let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle, this beautiful way of describing this movement from knowledge into wisdom to becoming real, to say it a different way.
Okay, thank you for your kind attention. So the homework from last week was to reflect on areas of your initial knowledge of Dharma. Wait, I didn't do the grammar very well down that, did I? <laughs> reflect on how your initial, uh, on areas of your life, that initial knowledge of the Dharma was transformed into embodied wisdom through your direct experience and clear seeing. So reflecting just, okay, the different ways I've kind of heard the teachings, and then over time, I developed a different way of understanding that. It might be simply how to, something as simple as learning how to be non-judgmental with my awareness. How to actually, what does that actually mean? What does that actually feel like and show up? And the other part of the homework was to choose one Dharma teaching and bring it to life within the context of your daily interactions, roles, and activities. Try to see it for yourself. You know, say so take something from a knowledge level into moving it toward the wisdom by seeing how it actually shows up in your life. So it'll take 20 minutes for this, so monitor your time. Each person gets around, what, four to five minutes. So you get the two topics. You can choose one or both. Reflect on some area that your initial knowledge of the Dharma got transformed into wisdom through your direct experience, your direct seeing. And how, what was that like to actually understand it in a deeper way? It may still be in process. Hopefully it is in process, but some deepening from knowledge into wisdom. The other one is maybe something you do, some teaching you took on to really see how does this show up in my life? You know, how does craving show up? How does, how does my struggle around the hindrances show up? Something like that, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so again, about 20 minutes here, keeping everything said there confidentially. Okay, welcome back. So now we have a chance for any uh, questions or sharing you'd like to put into the, the larger group. And if you're here in the room, if you don't mind coming up so the people online can hear you. And those online, you can just raise your virtual hand. Okay, come on up, Adam. Great, thanks. Go ahead, Adam. Thanks, Tim. Um, first of all, just so appreciate the talk tonight. That was really fertile ground for me. Um, brought a lot of clarity. Um, I wanted to talk about a, a, an experience I had um, and ask a question related to it, which was I was in a difficult discussion and I was telling my group, I you know, have read a lot of things about how to have difficult discussions mm -hmm. and talking about kind of the knowledge side of things here, like nonviolent communication and those types of things. And um, I had an experience just the other day where um, I was in one of those intense conversations and something was said and I had, um, you know, an experience of reactivity and felt a pull towards a certain kind of response. And I also felt the, you know, the, the sense of that, you know, the experience of that, and also heard kind of like the pain and the suffering behind the statement that brought me into mm. that reactive state. Mm -hmm. And had, you know, kind of for the first time, maybe a, like a, a natural movement towards like I'm going to move towards that pain that I heard in the statement rather than 
you know, which I've done before. Like, okay, I hear you saying this. It's like this scripted thing, but I had this movement towards actually like, wow, there was pain there and I want to move towards that. Mm-hmm. And it was a really cool thing. And it, it, hearing the talk today, I felt like, wow, there was wisdom moving in where I had knowledge and I felt it and I like had this genuine movement. And then I was telling my group, then later I was like, wow, now I know this thing. And I think that I'm just going to do that from now on. I was like, oh, did I just move right back into knowledge? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Like close the loop. Um, So yeah, I wonder if you can talk at all about that. Like, can, can we have genuine moments of wisdom and then mistake that and cognize it and, um, and, and maybe how do we cultivate or, or practice with not, not cognizing those, those moments and, and have appreciating them for what they are? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. It's a great, great question. Everyone able to hear that online? Yeah. Good. How many people have found that your own ex- version of that? You had some insight that arose. You thought, oh, this is it. And, that very moment kind of made it go further away. It's like you, it's like a dog realizing, oh, I've got a tail, and started you start to chase your tail, and the more you chase it, the further away it goes. So, you know, partly it's very natural, but if you step back and it gets, it's incredibly frustrating too, because you're like, you know, you, you had this this really genuine shift of how you were relating in that moment. The idea, oh, there's pain over here to actually sensing the pain actually going from your heart toward instead of I hear you saying you know that that kind of scripted way that we we often you know try to get into more skillful conversation and we often we have that many different versions right different ways of of insights arise and in that moment it's really that shift of of it's not only it's perception but also really where we're located you know where we are in relationship to how that something in us falls away, shifts, opens up, you know, all these different ways. And then we try to, and in that moment, we're like no longer so defined. We're not so, because probably in that moment, you were, there was a way of being, there's less of an atom there, certainly less of an atom who was trying to do the right thing, you know, the, the right way to converse, but more, you just were having a conversation with someone who was having pain and you chose not to go down your own reaction, but actually touch that pain. And there's a way that you became less defined in that moment. And then later you said, oh, I'm the Adam who knows how to do this. You know, and we all have, I'm not picking on you, like we all have that. I'm the Tim who know, now knows how to do this. But that's gone from, the, it's like the very thing that made that so transformational, so magical, and so insightful was really the kind of the, the softening of that sense of self, that releasing that investment and naturally, we're like, oh, I want to put myself back together. I want to reform myself, you know, because it's this ego, the sense of self doesn't really like not being so formed. It's, it's very threatening. It's one of the most threatening things to it is that it's not formed. And so, you know, it's like this play of the heart and the immediacy of, of, of the heart and wisdom versus the kind of certainty and prison of our sense of self. It's like we're always kind of going back and forth. So when you so just kind of frame it from that perspective, it's like okay, when you start to solidify, that's when it's going to be harder to find. It's going to be like that. It's going to go further away. 
like ox herding pictures that we did. Was it just last year? I guess it was just last year. You know, there's there's a way that was portrayed again and again, that sense of, oh, I've got it. And then the ox would disappear. Right? The ox being our true nature or the an insight. There's different ways we can perceive of that. So how do you work with that instead? And this is um, something Rodney taught me with when this comes up with, with students and in my own practice, is sometimes we relate to an insight as something that's really solidified. Like, oh, I had this moment of non-self. I had this moment of deep opening into impermanence or anicca. And it's something that we relate to as something in the past, something like an accomplishment. Like, you know, I ran a four-minute four mile or something like that. It's like this, this plaque we want to put on the wall. But that really kind of, it takes away its, its, its power, really. The better question is, how does that way of seeing, how does that inform how you are in this moment? Because it's a shift of perception, a shift of locus. And so it kind of, kind of opens up something in you. It's like a, a, a pathway that's there, that wasn't there in the same way before. You can sense, what was it like to be in that place of the heart moving forward? You know, versus me trying to be the one with an open heart, it's more like the heart just is there. You know, it's like it's like you just kind of sense into that. And how does that inform this moment? How does it inf- how does that insight inform the way you're perceiving the way you are in this moment? And the two ways two ways that works is sometimes it shows you how, the release of the struggle. Sometimes it shows you, the na- shows you the nature of the struggle in highlighted form. It's like, okay, I'm really invested in being the kind, compassionate listener. And that makes it so hard to get to that in a genuine way. So let me see, what does it feel like to be contracted? And then you can also see, what's it feel like to release that? Thank you, Adam. Yeah, thank you, Tim. All right, how about back online? Anyone like to ask or share anything? All right, if you feel inspired, just raise your virtual hand and I'll see it eventually. How about back in the room? Anyone else like to ask or share? Okay, Deborah, come on up. This wasn't from our group discussion, but it was a very intense memory that popped up when you quoted from The Velveteen Rabbit. There in our family, there's a stuffed rabbit. And when my son was a toddler, he was holding this thing and all of a sudden he started crying, just weeping. This was the matter. It's not real. And then our interaction was my kind of helping him to see that it was real and not real at the same time mm. and that that sort of worked mm. and the, the rabbit has since passed on to several more people it's still in the family mm. beautiful <laughs> beautiful story yeah that it's it's not real but it is real yeah it can it can be both and that's that that balancing of the relative and the absolute and the way we hold you know the meaning into things thank you deborah Anyone else like to share or ask anything? Iris, go ahead. Thank you, Tim. 
So um, this is, I think, going to come out pretty incoherent. There are just these thoughts going around. Um, and it relates in part to the comment of um, the comments of Adam and also to our what I shared in our group discussion around anatta, not self, and um, uh, some knowledge around um, some understanding of the concept, and then also, I guess, a little more um, embodied um, feelings of seeing myself as more of a flow and a result of all the causes and conditions of my life that have led me here and that and that you know I I I feel I guess maybe part of it is because um of of aging and feeling you know some physical falling apart and also being in a transitional period in in my life because I'm going to be selling my house and moving, but um, that I, I um, <clears throat> you know, I never have a good day or a bad day um, or a good hour or a bad hour. Uh, I, um, th- the feelings and the thoughts just move and change a lot. And it seems as if I'm, um, just aware of that more of the time. So, um, and, and I think all of that helps me to some degree to not identify as strongly with stuff that causes me and therefore others suffering, I think. I'm yes. done. <laughs> Thank you, Iris, for sharing that. Yeah, there's a way our practice, like the things you described around that, kind of that being more in the kind of the verb of you, the verb of the iris, the the, the rising and falling, and you know, all the changing milieu. Sometimes our, our in our practice, we may like try to experience um, impermanence or experience non-self and all those things. But at some point, the practice starts to actually transform us that our set point actually becomes that. We start to realize that's actually describes how things are for me. That actually, that's not so much something I practice or something I'm trying to get to. It actually, the practice has worked its, its, um, its transformation on us in a way that we're starting to shift into that's actually how we, we perceive life. We actually see there's not the solidity, especially if we reflect back, you know, maybe how many years ago that there was more of that solidity. And yes, absolutely, that's that. That sense of flow that allows you not to be so kind of caught or reactive or, or stuck in when, when things that normally would have stuck you, you're able to say, oh yeah, there's this, yeah, maybe having feelings about this, but those feelings themselves are in flux or are in process. And so there's a way that we start to see things more and more, just the reality, the, the nature of things as being of that flow. And there's an ease to that. There's a, 
yeah, there's a, that sense of not, not good days or bad days, good moments or bad moments. That's a sense of equanimity starting to flow in. That our normal, normally our happiness is so tied to the presence of what's good and happy and joyful and unhappiness is tied to the opposite of that. And we start to realize there's some presence here that's actually okay with uncomfortable feelings and joyful feelings. It kind of holds it all. And that's, that's the transformation of the practice. So thank you, Iris, for sharing that. Thank you. And good luck with your move. That's a big transition. You've been there a while. All right. Anyone else like to ask or share anything? Yes, Beth, come on up. Um, this is something I shared in the group, and um, it has to do with a teaching that I uh, was enamored by. You know how those are. They tend to be the ones you need uh, early on, uh, which were the parameters for skillful speech. Okay. And I was sharing that I had a Dharma buddy early on, and we'd meet in a coffee shop and study the Dharma, and and we got the got it down, like... Uh, the four parameters, uh, kindly, timely, useful, and true, right? And then they all have to be met to, for it to be skillful speech. Mm-hmm. And that was, I felt like, it's like something was telling me this is your teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and for a number of reasons, uh, uh, I lacked skill in many ways um and that was one of them is one of them but adam's adam's words about you know the binary operating system jumping in and wanting to make it into a project or Mm. manipulate the ways that i'm going to get what i need to say across in all those to meet all those parameters especially like in a domestic relationship like with marriage or with kids and um more recently, I think wisdom has taught me that a lot of those things I don't, I shouldn't, you know, the, the skillful speech is to not speak, mm. <laughs> to not say it. Mm. Um, that just because I have some thought doesn't mean I need to figure out how to say it and when and in what way. And um, it's been really quiet in the house for about a year. <laughs> so. Thank you, Beth. <laughs> yeah, there's those 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 four elements of you know, of wise speech and yeah, then and yeah, that the the wisdom like okay, maybe I don't actually have to say it, right? That's a different relationship to our our thinking mind. I and mean, so often, I think one of the biggest transformations that happens in our practice is we stop believing everything our minds think. Right, but before it's like, oh, I thought it must be true, or it must be really convincing, and we just start to realize, well, this mind is just kind of throwing out ideas and concepts and memories based on reactions, and it's all kind of it's pretty shaky at best. So, like that that last one, that is it true? You start to realize, well, what's what's really true in this moment? Is it relatively true? 
Is it more of a just, my, yeah, it's true that I'm upset, and but maybe it's not true that you're a fill-in-the-blank. <laughs> well, and, and as you're talking, I'm thinking um, a lot of, like, what the motivation is, right? The motivation right. for speaking, the, the, um, the sweet ego, as one of our teachers talks about, the sweet ego, um, wants to make something happen, and... Um, and the teaching has been like, as I've said, things have calmed down a little in the house because I'm not talking as much. And I reflected more recently about, has there been any, like what's happened? Is, has the world changed domestically? Has things, have things fallen apart or mm. have things become more fantastic? No, they haven't changed at all. Mm. Which makes me think that what I was, when I was talking all the time, I wasn't really doing any good. You know, I was trying to make the effect change that really didn't didn't need to be changed to begin with. So, and that goes back to our last last month of that delusion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and we learn over time, right? We learn. You know, it's like sometimes we think we're being wise, and then we have a deeper understanding of that. I think there was I forget her name. This is a spirit rock teacher. I guess came up with wait. Why am I talking? Yes. <laughs> You know, you know, why am I talking right now? Am I talking because there's no one else talking? Or <laughs> I'm talking because my mind says an idea, I want to share it, or I have this unseen agenda, like I want to, you know, and all that starts to become more and more clear and you see it more and more. Great, thank you for sharing that, Beth. All right, anyone else like to ask or share anything? Yeah, so um, thank you, Jim. Yeah, it was Sylvia Bordstein who said, said that. Yeah, I couldn't quite pull out her name, but Sylvia Bordstein, I think, coned, wait, why am I talking? Wait. All right, anyone else? All right, come on up, Maddie. Hey, Tim. Uh, so in our group, we were talking a bit about um, just kind of this paradoxical thing of how like, knowledge can both lead to wisdom and prevent wisdom. Mm. So maybe like a practical example is like, you know, you read a book on Buddhism or a technique or awakening or something, and it gets you like excited and be like, you know, gets you on a path. But at the same time, like, you're like, oh, well, I should be using this technique and this should be happening. Like that knowledge can kind of prevent the wisdom from occurring, you know, like that expectation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I just wonder if you had a thought on how like it's both, you know, be a useful catalyst, but also has like a, can limit you in some way. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's kind of, in some ways, one way we can talk about it is around wise effort and the discernment that comes from that. Another way is just like, what are the kind of the effects of how we're practicing? Or even more basically, how am I relating to this moment? What's the effects of that relationship? And we start to kind of develop a, a clarity of which effects are actually beneficial or helpful and which ones are more create suffering that create that quality of, of strife and difficulty and contraction. We kind of talked about this last week in some of the questions that sometimes you can almost have that, that narrow, so so much a narrow, but like a, 
almost like a knife edge, like a one side is suffering, other side is freedom. And we can we start to discern, I can relate to like a Dharma teaching in a way that's leading toward freedom. And I can shift into a way that I actually use it as a weapon against myself. It's like, oh, I should be, I got lost in thoughts again. I must be so lost in greed and hatred and delusion. God, I just hate that. Oh, I just wish I was more enlightened. I mean, I can, I can before I can realize it, I can be greedy about my hatred and all of this stuff can start to get mixed, mixed up, right? But we, as meditators, hopefully we learn that art of, it's almost like it's this weird stepping back. We step back so we can sense it, observe it, and have a bigger perspective versus being lost in the middle of it. It's weird because there's also this intimacy that goes in that we become, it's almost like we first, we're so enmeshed in an unconscious way with things, then we learn to observe it, we step back, and then eventually we actually learn to, to lose that separation. But we come back consciously into, into life. So part of that stepping back is we can discern like, wow, I got this, I'm relating to this same thing. It's like, like with the question that, um, um, Adam had around, you know, just this insight that we can relate to it in a way that really is opening. And then we can instantly shift in a way that creates more suffering. We just start to sense, oh, I'm creating more <clears throat> of a stronger sense of self right now. And that becomes, becomes almost this clarity that you can see that, or I'm, I'm getting into this place of distancing or separation, however it kind of makes sense to you, versus opening or releasing. Yeah. Sense. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, Iris. Okay, Kathy, go ahead. This would be our last question. Thank you, Tim, and everybody. It just occurred to me, Tim, that um, you were saying about. Uh, blaming ourselves when when we're doing or not doing what we think you know is the is the right way to be and i was realizing is there a way you could sync up is there a way that we could understand uh, blaming oneself as part of selfing 100% so what do we do What do we do? How do we not blame ourselves or judge ourselves? How do, yeah. yeah. How do we not be selfing? Well, yeah, so from, you know, from a psychological standpoint, from a psychological health standpoint, that sense of, of blame, of course, it causes so much misery and, and contraction and, you know, internally, externally. From a dharmic standpoint, that's all true. And it's really a strong mechanism of creating that sense of self. Yeah, it's just really a powerful way. It's, it's like, I think that's why it's so, sometimes so hard for us to deal with it because we're, we're looking at it as a problem, which is really just judging the judgment, instead of realizing, oh, I'm just using this as glue to kind of create that sense of me. Because when we're judging ourselves, you know, are you, are you vague about who you are? Are you a little less defined? I mean, you know exactly what you are. It's like, oh yeah, I'm this miserable, piece of whatever, you know, and just, it really gets strong and heavy. And we're like, we're judging someone else. I can't believe that they sit with their legs that way instead of the right way. And I can just get so tight around it, right? 
But if you step back, that stepping back, we realize, oh, I've really created a sense of self. I've really bought into it. And that the trick, tricky part is, as soon as you catch it, then that's where really this, this really wise way of using effort is so helpful. That you just, okay, how can I just allow the judgment to be completely there without changing it at all, and yet not adding anything to it, without adding one little extra bit to it? And it may be that you have to kind of back off into the judgment of the judgment of the judgment of the judgment of the judgment. But at some point, you can say, okay, I can allow that 10x judgment to just be there. And I can have a little bit of space, a little bit, it almost feels like there's just a little air around it versus like that contraction. That's a, that's a nice, like with um, the last question around that, you know, that knife edge, am I creating air and space around it or am I suffocating it? Am I stuck to it? So then, then you start to see that judgment. And this is where it gets a little bit more um, tricky because the judgment is often goes into this much deeper belief, a core belief of what we are, of who we are. The judgment is just kind of a way of kind of almost kind of insulating us from the real pain of it because we're kind of talking about it. When we actually stop talking and actually touch the deeper pain of that, there's a lot of tenderness. And we see deeper layers of how true we believe this is. But hopefully we do it in a way that doesn't kind of recharge it or re-cause, you know, re-cause it to reinforcing it, but actually starts to loosen it and soften it. It starts to, to let it go, starts to dissolve a bit. Because you're hopefully having that little bit of perspective as you're observing these very deep, very personal ways we create that sense of self mm-hmm. through that self-disminishment. But the good news is, ultimately, you can see that it's just a belief, it's just a thought that actually doesn't have any bearing on what you really are. And there's so much ease and freedom that comes from that. Mm. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, Kathy. All right, and thank you all for your questions. You know, so helpful to kind of flush out the, the exploration and to really make it, you know, engaging for all of us. All right, so next week I'll be back teaching another aspect of wisdom. I don't know what it's going to be yet. Hopefully we'll, something wise will come up. <laughs> and if not, we can talk about how unwise it is. <laughs> all right, thank you all, and hope you have a, um, a restful evening and be well. And um, enjoy, enjoy the, the fall weather. <laughs>